0: Evan held up pretty good there. I thought he might be weeping when he came down. So I checked him. He looked all right. Good job. Thank you all. That was beautiful today. And so perfectly on point. So it was nice to have. Uh, Evie Salzman with us today. I saw you come in here and sit there and I see There was an extra seat here. I thought you might come up and join the choir like old times. Good to have you with us today. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray you'll be with us today. Give us a, a keen mind to understand that we may carry with us an understanding of your purpose and the proof of your hand and work in the world, and that that can shore us up in the strange days in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's been a rather interesting week for Adventists in particular, what with a certain visitor in America from Rome, maybe you noticed. And what an interesting week for us to arrive at Daniel chapter 7. There is much to say, much more than I could possibly ever say in a single Sabbath. But just in the event you wanted a little counsel from me regarding things, my initial counsel to you today, if you perhaps have been disquieted by the events of this last week, is this. Stay calm. Timing of response is often just as important as content of response. Things always happen more slowly and more quickly than we expect. Quickly when they come upon us unaware, but then often so slowly when they unfold, right? Certainly what we have seen these past few days is remarkable, but it's a story that's not fully developed. For now, we must wait and see. And for those of you who today wonder what in the world is he talking about, I encourage you to hold that question and see if the next few Sabbaths don't in fact clarify that a bit for you. To that end, I would also like to suggest to you that this is an important time for you to be in church because God has put us at a most fascinating place in the Bible at a most fascinating time you see there was not some great scheme I had in mind that set up that we would be arriving at Daniel chapter 7 this week but as I said earlier there is much more to say than one week could possibly allow and in truth I won't even get to what some of you may be wanting me to talk about today. Today we really only have time to take a big picture view of Daniel chapter 7. And to that end I actually won't be able to finish it up next Sabbath either because next Sabbath we have baby dedication at third service and we've got so many this time we're actually doing it in two waves. So it's pretty exciting all the kids we've got in the church. But that's going to shorten our time a little bit. So today we'll focus on Daniel 7, the big picture. Next Sabbath, we're gonna go back and pick up Daniel 5, and then on October 10, we'll come back to this subject of Daniel 7. We may need to add some time on the 17th as well. We'll just have to see where we are at that point. And so, with the bizarre visual context, of an older man dressed in all white and wearing a cross, standing before a packed house chamber, receiving an extended standing ovation from members of both parties. In that rather bizarre visual context, we take up our Bibles and begin to read. Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. It's the closing days of the Babylonian Empire. King Nebuchadnezzar is dead. And the conqueror's heart that used to beat within the kingdom of Babylon is gone, and all that's left is a bit of a shell, a crumbling shell, of an empire ruled over by joint kings Belshazzar and Nabonidus. We'll spend more time on that next Sabbath. And in this moment, something new happens. You see, Daniel in this moment goes from being the interpreter of dreams to the receiver of dreams. Oh sure, technically I suppose he did get the dream in chapter 2, but he only got the dream after Nebuchadnezzar got the dream, and he only got it for the purpose of interpreting to Nebuchadnezzar that dream. So how's this for an uncomfortable point? Try this one on. Now that the prophet Nebuchadnezzar was gone, I'm in trouble already, right? God needed someone else to reveal the future to, so he chose Daniel. Okay, that's just way too wrong. And if you say I said that, I'll deny it. But it's kind of funny to think about, isn't it? up to this point all the dreams of the future have come to Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's been the interpreter well all of a sudden it's gonna change verse 2 Daniel said in my vision at night I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea four great beasts each different from the others came up out of the sea the first was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard There is much to unpack and consider here, but so that you get the whole picture, I'm going to keep reading. Verse 8, while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, Glory and sovereign power all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed So this is the vision that Daniel saw Is it possible for us to understand its meaning? Well, in truth, the interpretation is probably much easier for us than it was for Daniel. Because what is being depicted here was a long ways away from what Daniel was expecting the future to look like. And this did not sit well with him. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Why? Why? Why do you think it disturbed him? We're gonna see some indication, I believe, of what troubled him in the verses ahead. Let's go on, verse 16. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. Now pause for just a second here and catch the irony here. It used to be Nebuchadnezzar would have a dream and then he'd go find Daniel to tell him what it meant. Well now Daniel's having a dream and all of a sudden he doesn't know what it means anymore. Isn't that how life goes sometimes, right? Now he's looking for someone to tell him. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So what he says here, it's a brilliant little nutshell, synopsis, interpretation. One that then enables us to connect this vision with another vision we already talked about. The vision from Daniel chapter 2. So let's just pause here and see if we can draw any parallels from what we already know. You remember, I described Daniel chapter 2 as the frame into which all other chronological uh, prophecies of the Bible have to fit. So let's see if we can make it fit. You all remember the image from Daniel chapter 2. We talked about this, the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar saw the dream and Daniel said, you are the head of gold. Describing the kingdom of Babylon which would fall around the year 539. After that would come the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians described in the image as the chest and arms of silver. The Medes and the Persians, and primarily the Persians by the end, would hang around until the year 331 when, the belly and thighs of bronze, the empire of Greece would arise on the strength of Alexander the Great. Then in 168 a new power would have arisen and would take over the same area described in the vision as the legs of iron and that is the Roman Empire that would come to power. Now the Roman Empire would be the empire in power during the days of Jesus and the apostles and the beginning of the Christian church. And the empire itself would last until around the year 476. But then the image describes feet of iron and clay, the ununitable nations of the world, which has been the reality ever since that time, down to our day. But that wasn't the end of the vision. Then would come a stone cut without human hands that would strike the image on the feet, smash the image, the wind would blow it away, and the stone would grow to fill the earth. This was Daniel 2. So does the brief synopsis interpretation of the one standing there, as Daniel calls him, fit this pattern? Well, let's consider each beast as it's described, and then let's see if it matches the image and then matches history. So for these descriptions, we've got to go back to the early verses here of Daniel 7, verse 2. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked, And there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Now, there are three clues here that can help us interpret this. One in the text itself, another in the nature of the beasts themselves, and a third in the language in which the text is written. These things will help us, guide us to our interpretation. The first point I mentioned before, this particular part of the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. There's a shift in the book of Daniel. Chapter 1 is Hebrew and then beginning in chapter 2 through chapter 7 it's written in Aramaic. That was more the language of the nations around Israel at the time. And the very use of that language is a clue to us that perhaps we should be looking to the Gentile world to the others for our interpretation of these images. The winds are churning up The Great Sea it says. From the perspective of someone in Judah, you had the Dead Sea, you had the Red Sea, and you had the Great Sea. The Great Sea is what we would today call the Mediterranean Sea. So in this context, this gives us a clue as well that these kingdoms will be contained in the context and in the area of the Mediterranean Basin. And then there's a third clue, based on the animals themselves in this vision. The third clue is that the animals we see are all fierce, non-kosher predators. These are not animals that would be associated with any kind of Jewish process, or sacrificial system, or anything like that. And they're all violent, which suggests to us something outside of Israel is where we should be looking. All of these clues suggest to us that ahead in the time coming these fierce beasts are likely to align with the Gentile kingdoms that would dominate the Mediterranean region. Let's see if they do. Verse 4, the first was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it." So it, it had to have looked something like this. If Daniel 7 aligns with Daniel 2, then this beast here, this winged lion, should align with Babylon. Is there anything that might suggest it does? Well, it turns out, archaeology has shown that the symbol of a lion frequently appeared in Babylon. There was a great processional way that the king used to march down and carved all along the wall on the sides were lions. In one of the main courts, there was a giant sculpture of a lion, and one of the main gods of Babylon, Ishtar, is said to have always come riding on a lion. But something interesting happens to this lion. It says his wings are torn off. When you're looking at things like this, wings usually are meant to imply speed. So the wings here would imply there was a certain speed to the rate at which the Babylonian empire conquered. And in in fact, if you look at history, the Assyrian empire fell quite rapidly and Babylon moved right in and took control of that former Assyrian kingdom with pretty good speed. But at the end, he would lose his wings, he would lose his empire-building ways, and he would stand on his two feet and be given the heart of a man. He kind of quit being an effective predator towards the end. And if next week you're here, you'll hear how this former shell of a great empire just basically collapsed and fell apart all in one day. Well, let's go on. Verse 5. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. So something like this is what the next image looked like. Now the text points out two specific things. One is that it was raised up on one side. The interesting thing about the Medo-Persian Empire was that it was two peoples ruling a single empire. However, they were pretty much never equally matched in the empire. In the early days, the Medes dominated. In the latter days, the Persians dominated this empire. So that kind of explains why it was raised up on one side. But it also said it had three ribs in its mouth. When the Medo-Persian Empire came to power, it did so by defeating three other kingdoms. The first in the year 547 B.C. was the Lydian Empire, the Lydian Kingdom, which was in what today we would call the nation of Turkey. Then they defeated the Babylonians in 539 and then finally Egypt in 525. And this formed the core of the Medo-Persian Empire. That's pretty good alignment so far, isn't it? But if you like that, just watch this next one. This is crazy. Verse 6. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. All right, that's kind of a silly beast there, isn't it? Four heads, four wings. If two wings typifies speed, what do you suppose four wings typifies? We might guess that was really fast. The Babylonians fairly quickly defeated the Assyrians and gained their empire. The Medo-Persians took longer. It took them about 22 years to defeat those three kingdoms. But now here comes a creature with not just two wings but four. So we might expect to be looking for a conquering king who conquered a vast region in a very short amount of time. Is that what we find next? Well, as a matter of fact, yeah, we do. You see, the next kingdom to come along would be the one carved out by Alexander the Great. Alexander would leave on his conquests, leave Macedonia in the year 334 B.C. And by 331 B.C., three years later, he would have conquered all of Turkey, all of Egypt, and all the major cities of the Persian Empire. Three years. Just for comparison, it took the Assyrians three years to take Samaria. It took the Babylonians three years to take Jerusalem but Alexander took every major city in the eastern Mediterranean and Mesopotamia in three short years. Talk about speed. But there's something else weird about the beast, right? Four heads. Do you remember what happened to Alexander's empire? Alexander took his army all the way to the Indus River and was never defeated but in the year 324 BC his army had finally had enough and they finally said you know what we're going home and they just turned around Alexander traveled back with them as far as Babylon and then with nothing left to do in his life at the age of 32 In the year 323 B.C., he died, leaving no heir to this massive kingdom. So what happened next? Well, the kingdom promptly divided into, can you guess how many parts? Four parts, each headed by one of Alexander's generals. Yeah, so I suppose the winged four headed leopard lines up pretty well, doesn't it? But the vision wasn't over. There was one beast that remained. Verse 7 After that, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. Okay, sometimes there seems to be a certain charm to the other beasts, but this last one is just scary. Nobody even really knows what to make it look like. If we were to follow our Daniel 2 template and align it with Mediterranean history, we would discover that this fourth beast represents the Roman Empire. And it aligns well with Daniel 2 as well, because the legs are described as iron. In this one, the teeth are described as iron. And in both cases is the indication that it breaks and smashes. This is not the end of the alignment between Daniel 2 and 7, for as you recall, these iron legs then bleed down into feet of iron and clay implying that the Roman Empire wouldn't so much be conquered by another kingdom, but would in fact break down in the end into a number of ununited kingdoms until it would be struck by a rock cut without hands. But you see, Daniel 2 is a little short on the details. Daniel 7 is not. Verse 19, then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast which was different from all the others, and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims, and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head, and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others, and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully as I watched this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High and and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Daniel gives us some details in this portion of the text that he left out of his original description. After seeing the terrible power of this beast, his eyes are drawn to the horns, and specifically to one horn in particular that was different from all the rest. And this perhaps explains to a great degree why Daniel was so troubled and disturbed after seeing this vision. Did you catch verse 21? As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. So if Daniel had hoped that in fact the troubles that were going to come upon God's people were almost over because the 70 years of exile were almost done and then they would go back to the land, if Daniel was hoping this would be the end of the troubles for God's people, he was sadly mistaken because what this dream was suggesting was you got trouble now and you're going to get trouble again and again and again and again and again again until the Ancient of Days stands up and puts it to an end. Violent kingdom after violent kingdom would arise, and then these would give way to divided kingdoms and to this little horn that would wage war and defeat God's people until the day of judgment would come. Daniel had asked the one standing there, and now he would get his answer. Verse 23, he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. All right, there is so much here that I need to tell you, but I will not have time to do so today. I will only be able to establish a couple of key points that we will be building on in two weeks. First, there will be a fourth kingdom as powerful as iron, but even this kingdom will not last forever. We know the fourth kingdom to be the Roman Empire, which was, for its day, strong as iron. But we also know this empire eventually collapsed. But not at the hands of another mighty empire, but rather at the hands of the Germanic barbarians of Northern Europe. It says the fourth beast had ten horns on its head. And verse 24 tells us the 10 horns are 10 kings who will come from this kingdom. So is this what happened to Rome when Rome broke down? <clears throat> History shows us that the emperor of Rome finally after becoming exhausted with trying to fight off all the barbarians up and moved his his capital to the east founding the city of Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, at the point where Europe and Asia meet. And then the western part of the empire was overrun by, depending on how and when you count, ten different tribes of barbarians. The Anglo-Saxons, the Franks, the Suevi, the Visigoths, the Alamanni, the Burgundians, the Lombards, the Vandals, the Ostrogoths, and the Heruli. So out of Rome would come these kings, and most of you are probably related to some of these people. Out of Rome would come these kings, and out of them or from amongst them would come one more one that would be different, one that would cause the destruction of three of them as it came forth. We will deal with this issue at length in two weeks. But our time today is spent and besides I want to finish somewhere else today. I want to close by keying on these words Verse 21, as I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. Hang on to that phrase. We're going to use it again. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. To understand, we need to go again to the original description of the vision and then recall what we know from Daniel chapter 2, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. This piece of the vision takes place in the midst of the havoc that's been wrought by all the other beasts and these horns. And it's as if for just a moment, Daniel gets two views simultaneously. Looking down, he sees all the earth and the rampaging beasts and the horns and the destruction, but then it's as though he looks up slightly and he sees this other view, a view of heaven where the Ancient of Days is looking on upon what's happening on the earth and he's called together a court and that court has taken their seat and the books are now opened. Verse 13, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So we see destruction on the earth as the kingdoms of men vie with one another for power and dominion and authority. But in another realm, there is a coronation going on, and a new king is being anointed, but not with human hands. The heavenly court will sit, and that court will come to a decision regarding the kings of the earth and the actions they take. Verse 26, but the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. The judgment of the court will put an end to the slaughtering kings of the earth and replace them with a king of their own choosing, a righteous king who will rule in righteousness. Verse 27, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This new king will not just receive power and dominion for a time, but he will receive an everlasting kingdom and an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. He's the stone from Daniel 2 that crushes the image and grows to fill the earth. So who is this king who will one day rule the earth forever? Isaiah mentions him. Isaiah 63, verse 1 Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red, like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support, so my own arm achieved salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger, in my wrath I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. The stone crushed the image and the wind blew it away. The psalmist foresaw this day when he wrote in Psalm 110 verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Did you know this Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament? And do you know who Isaiah 63, Psalm 110, Daniel 2, and Daniel 7, for that matter, who they're really talking about here? You see, even with all the beasts, even with all the images, even with all that stuff, it's still really all about Jesus. He's the stone cut without human hands. He's the king that the court appoints. And he's the one who will rule forever and ever. Make no mistake, the book of Daniel speaks of many wild and amazing things, but in the end, it's really just telling us how and when Jesus will come to reign. But now our time is more than spent, yet even hours here could not bring us to a better ending point than this, the realization that it really is all about Jesus his kingdom is the everlasting one and even now the ancient of days is putting all his enemies under his feet the ancient of days rules over all creation and all ages he will bring to an end the violent kingdoms of man and establish forever the kingdom of Jesus the end is certain Let's pray. Father in heaven, bring about that day. We cry out to you for the day that Jesus will come in power and reign. Send forth your son. We are his subjects and his kingdom. In his name we pray. Amen.